Um, our first Bible reading in our new building is Genesis 4, um, verses 1 to 8, which can be found on page 9 of the Bibles in your pews. That's Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. May God in his grace help us to listen carefully to his word. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The next reading is from 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11, and it can be found on page 869 in the Blue Church Bibles. That's 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from life to death, but because we love our brothers, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and receive from him anything we ask, 
because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in us. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Olivia. Let's uh, keep our Bibles open then at uh, 1 John 3. And um, I'm going to ask the Lord to bless us and help us to understand his word. Heavenly Father, uh, you have already overwhelmed us with your love this week. For only a week ago we we were unsure about where we would be meeting even this morning. But you made a way for us to be here in a building that is far more than we could ever have asked or imagined. But now, Lord, as we come to your holy word, please would you rend the heavens and come down. Please fill our hearts that we may be made bold to tell others of your love and power among us, that they might come here and meet Jesus for themselves. In his name we pray. Amen. So what, uh, what kind of suburb is Weinberg? Um, how should we think about the suburb that the Lord has brought us to? Well, one way to think about it is historically. Uh, Weinberg takes its name from a farm called the Old Wine Mountain uh, that was established here by a Dutchman in 1683. Uh, in the 1830s, this suburb was home to the famous astronomer John Herschel, who set up his telescope here to study the skies of the Southern Hemisphere. Or we could think about it demographically. According to the 2011 census, There are 15,000 people living in Weinberg. Uh, Obviously, they come from a a wide variety of different uh, ethnic and social backgrounds. Just over half the population, interestingly, is female. Or we could think about it economically. Uh, If Weinberg isn't the most prosperous suburb in Cape, Cape Town, it's not actually the poorest either. 90% of the workforce is employed and uh, over half the population is aged between 25 and 64, the age when, of course, we are economically most active. Now, we could think of Weinberg in any of those ways and more besides. But the Apostle John says there is a more excellent way He says that the 15,000 people here on our doorstep all belong to just one of two families. Of course, John here isn't thinking of biological connections. He's concerned about spiritual realities. From God's perspective, at the end of the day, that is the only reality that counts. John has been reminding us that there is a family of darkness 
and a family of light. There's a family of people who are under the control of the evil one and there is a family that belongs to God. There is no third category. And John's concern is that everyone who belongs to God should know it. He wants them to know that they really are the dearly loved children of God. And for the Christian, this should be what defines us more than anything else. It's way more important than our education, our age, our career, our financial status. Those things are actually totally insignificant compared to knowing that I am a child of God. And John says that knowing this isn't rocket science. We don't need a a degree in theology in order to know where we stand. It's simply a matter of whether the characteristics of God's family are present in our lives or not. John says there are three of them. First, that we have faith in Jesus. Specifically, that we believe the apostles' teaching about Jesus and have surrendered our lives to him as Saviour and Lord, both of those. Second, that we are walking in the light rather than in the darkness. He's talking about obedience. And third, that we're loving our brothers and sisters. And the message of this letter is that where these family characteristics are present, well, there you have a believer. And where they're absent, well, there you have an unbeliever. And if you are a believer, if you are a true child of God, then John wants you to be growing more and more like Jesus in these three areas. Faith, holiness and love. Now in our passage this morning, the passage that Olivia read for us, obviously the focus is on love. You can see that if you come with me to verse 11. This is the message, says John, that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now notice, will you, that John does not say people should love one another. That, of course, is what the world wants. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, This past week, if you've been watching your television, you would have seen these terrible race riots taking place in North America. And the leaders there have been calling for people to calm down and start loving one another. And of course that's very, very understandable. But however much they want it, it's not actually going to happen. Because the love that John is talking about here has got nothing to do with natural human relationships. Now he's talking about supernaturally forged relationships between spiritual brothers and sisters. So, if you're a child of God, 
then what marks you out from the rest of the world is your love for your brothers and sisters. There's nothing else quite like it on planet Earth. And John wants every Christian to understand three things about it. The first, and you can see these in the inside of the bulletin, the first of these is the necessity of brotherly love. The necessity of brotherly love, and that's in verses 12 to 15. Now we've seen uh, that in this letter, John addresses his Christian uh, readers as children. It's a term of genuine affection, but it's also telling us that they still have a great deal to learn. And of course, one of the ways that parents teach their children is by giving them negatives. We parents would often say to our children when they were small, please don't do that, but do this instead. Now that's what John's doing here. He's reminded us in verse 11 that the children of God are to love one another. But that has two negative implications. The first is in verse 12. Do not be like Cain. This is very interesting because it's the only direct reference in the whole of the letter to the Old Testament. So it must be important. What's the point? Well, in verse 12, you'll notice that John tells us that Cain belonged to the evil one. So here's an example of what it looks like to be one of the devil's children. But the real genius of John's choice lies in the fact that Cain was religious. He was a worshipper. He presented his offerings to God just like his brother Abel. At first glance, he actually looked like a child of God. The reality, of course, is that he wasn't. And what proved the reality was the way that he treated his brother. Instead of loving him, he murdered him. And why did he murder him? Well, John says that it was because his own actions were evil and his brother's were righteous. Now, what's he talking about? Well, you'll remember from our series earlier this year in the book of Genesis that Abel brought an animal sacrifice to God. And we said at the time that the the principle of sacrifice as a means of approaching God had been established from the very beginning. So Abel cast himself on the mercy of God trusting in the blood of a substitute. But Cain didn't want to approach God that way. No, Cain wanted to approach God on his own terms, on the basis of his own work. And so, instead of bringing a sacrifice, he brought some of his crops, the fruit, you'll notice, of his own labour. 
Therefore, you see, Cain is an example of the troublemakers that had caused so much unrest and misery in John's churches. These people had rejected the apostles' teaching about Jesus and they thought that they could approach God on their own terms. But the children of God in the churches wouldn't go with them. And so, instead of loving the Christians in the churches, the troublemakers hated them. They walked out. And by saying, don't be like Cain, John is teaching us, you see, that there is no place whatsoever for hate in God's family. But that then leads us to the second negative implication that John wants us to grasp, and it's there in verse 13. Don't be like Cain, that's the first one. Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Now, I don't know whether you agree with me, but I think we Christians in the West are constantly surprised by this. That we all want to be liked. And I think it often catches us off balance when we're not. But John says it shouldn't. A number of us, I think, know about this in our own family situations. Um, There we were, we thought everything was absolutely fine in the family, and then suddenly everything turned upside down. Now why? Well, no doubt there are many uh, superficial explanations, but often as we've looked back, we've been able to see that it's just because we became true followers of the Lord Jesus some members of the family then turned against us. And John says, when that happens, please, don't be surprised. And of course we want to say at that point, well, why, John, is this happening today? After all, I thought we were living in the age of religious tolerance. And instead of answering that question himself, John, I think, would say to us, Listen to Jesus. So keep a finger in 1 John and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 15, on page 762. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, page 762. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that this is the final briefing that Jesus gave to his disciples the night before he went to the cross. And quite obviously, these words made a tremendously deep impression upon John. John 15, verse 18. Just look at what Jesus says there. Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now you see, friends, that's why John says, my dear child, please don't be surprised when this happens. It is actually 
utterly unsurprising that those who are the true children of God should be opposed by those who are not. Our Saviour was rejected and crucified and we will have a similar kind of experience. Now please come back to 1 John because with these uh, negatives out of the way I want to show you the marvellous, marvellous positive and it's there in verse 14 of chapter 3. This is where John teaches us why our love for one another is absolutely necessary. Verse 14. We know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And I think we can say there, our brothers and sisters, the word is not gender specific. And the point that he's making is precisely because this love is supernatural when we find ourselves doing it we know that we have experienced a spiritual resurrection we pass from death to life the ability to love one another is therefore a wonderful means of assurance that we really are the children of God Now, my dear friend, I wonder where you are this morning. Uh, You may be one of those marvellous Christians who's never had any reason whatsoever to doubt your salvation. And if that is you, well, that's absolutely marvellous. But I think most of us do go through seasons of doubt at some time or other. Uh, Or we may find ourselves talking to a brother or sister who says, you know what, Simon? I'm just not sure where I stand. Now, when somebody says that, what can you say to help them? Well, we can use verse 14 as a diagnostic tool. Depending on how well we know them, you see, we can say, well, look, yes, I hear you, you may have doubts, but you love your brothers and sisters, don't you? When we were moving into the the new church building yesterday, I watched how you were with the, the rest of the church family. I saw your love and affection. And you might put it differently, in rather more eloquent words than that, but because we can often see things in one another that we can't always see in ourselves, that kind of encouragement can wake up a doubter. It can be like a a ray of sunshine coming onto a flower in the early morning and suddenly they say, oh, do you know, that's absolutely right. I didn't used to care for these people at all, but, you know, you're right. I really do love them. Is that a word to you this morning, perhaps? But then, of course, all of this raises the question, well, what actually is this love that John is talking about? Does it mean simply having warm feelings towards people, generally feeling very positive about them? Uh, I think that is the way that many people do think of this word, love. But, of course, it's not what John means here. 
And so the second thing I want us to notice this morning is the pattern of brotherly love in verses 16 to 18. Come with me to verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now that's clear, isn't it? The pattern of brotherly love is the cross of Christ. And the contrast with Cain could hardly be more dramatic, could it? Cain was motivated by hatred and he destroyed his brother's life. Jesus Christ was motivated by love and he gave up his life so that his brothers and sisters, us, might have eternal life. Now you can't actually have a bigger contrast than that. And John says that means that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What does that actually mean? Well, clearly we can't die for one another in the same way that Jesus died for us. His death was unique because he purchased forgiveness for every sinner. Obviously, you and I can't do that. But what John is saying is that if the love of Jesus really grips our hearts, if the cross is firmly fixed in our minds, then we will want to demonstrate the same quality of love in our devotion to our fellow Christians. We will understand that love isn't simply warm feelings or an idea. No, no, it is love in action. It's a love that is entirely without self-interest and it's a love that changes lives. Ernest Gordon was chaplain of a a prisoner of war camp in Burma in the Second World War. Um, He recorded his experiences in a very famous book, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Some of you may have seen the movie. And he says in his book that there was a time when morale in the camp was very low indeed. Um, People were wondering if their lives were really worth living. And then something happened that changed their attitude completely. Um, A working party had been constructing a section of the railway and at the end of the day the working party was brought together by the guards and the usual checks were made for the tools that they had been using. And they discovered that a pickaxe was missing. The prisoners were instructed to find it but they couldn't. And the guards became increasingly angry. They feared that the prisoners might be planning an escape and so they began to shout and scream but no one owned up and so the guards decided to shoot the prisoners one by one until the culprit was identified. At that moment one man stepped forward from the ranks, he confessed the crime and he was just shot on the spot, killed, bang, gone. The rest of the prisoners were then marched back to the camp And when they arrived, they discovered there had been a mistake. The pickaxe was still there. It wasn't missing at all. And suddenly, everyone realised that this man 
had laid down his life for his friends. And Ernest Gordon says that that completely revolutionised the atmosphere in the camp. The prisoners suddenly realised they were actually worth dying for. And if they were worth dying for, well actually their lives were worth living. And the morale was transformed overnight. And Ernest Gordon, rather brilliantly, he he tells how he was able to use that to spell out to the men that the the amazing dimensions of love that they had just witnessed and experienced pale into insignificance alongside the love of Jesus. Because while this man had died for his friends, the Lord Jesus died for his enemies. And because Jesus laid down his life for his enemies, he made a way for us to become God's children. And Ernest Gordon concludes by saying that as a result of this, a great number of prisoners in the camp were converted to Christ. Now what John is saying is that when you and I receive the love of Jesus by faith, we are transformed from the inside out. And we begin to demonstrate this kind of love to one another quite naturally. Now, of course, we need to think about this carefully because uh, it's very unlikely that we're going to be uh, called, quite literally, to lay down our lives physically in death for one another. Not impossible, but unlikely. But what about the comparatively minor opportunities we have for showing self-sacrificing love? What about that? What about John's question in verse 17? If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him. Literally, that phrase means closes his heart against him. Well, then, how can the love of God be in him? Of course, the the needs in Cape Town are absolutely colossal, aren't they? They're, They're daunting, they're overwhelming. But John isn't talking about that. No, John's talking about the local church. It is first and foremost right here, among this group of people here this morning, that God expects the sacrificial love of Jesus to be made visible. And the application, I think, is simple, isn't it? Because if I'm a child of God, then when I see a brother or sister in need in the congregation, then the love of God will work in me to share from what I have been given. Why? Well, because it's the nature of God's love to give just as much as it is the nature of the sun to shine. You can't separate the two. And that's why, you see, this love is a proof of life. It's the proof of a faith that is real. It touches our bank accounts and our diaries. It governs the stewardship of our time, our talents, our energies, our possessions. 
The question, of course, is, do we dare to love one another like this? In our members' meeting um, a few weeks back, when we were talking about phase two, we all agreed that we want to be a church that does this. We all said it. But it's risky, isn't it? Because when you love somebody like this, you can get hurt. But I want to say to you this morning that the risk of not loving like this is infinitely greater. Christian author C.S. Lewis puts it brilliantly, and I've given you a quote on the back of the green sheet. You can follow along with me. He puts it this way. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglement. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. That's very striking, isn't it? Very striking. That's why John pleads with us, you see, and says, dear, dear, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue only, but with actions and in truth. Now, friends, are you with me so far? At first, we discovered the necessity of brotherly love as a proof that we really are God's children. Second, we saw the pattern of brotherly love demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. And now lastly, John shows us the grace of brotherly love. Verses 19 to 24. Now I need to tell you that um, verses 19 to 24 have been understood by the commentators in two very different ways. Uh, And it all depends on how they read verse 19. Have a look at verse 19 with me. In our Bibles it says this, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, the the traditional interpretation takes the NIV as it stands in our Bibles and it says that having told us to love one another, the Apostle John knows perfectly well we're not actually going to be able to do this perfectly. Uh, From time to time, uh, we will feel guilty about it and our hearts will condemn us. But in those moments, the idea is we set our hearts at rest, that is, we, we calm 
our anxious consciences by remembering that God is greater. He's greater than our hearts and he sees our failures to love one another through the cross and he accepts us anyway. Now that's the traditional understanding of of these verses uh, and of course it's immensely attractive. But I have to tell you, I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong for at least two reasons. The first actually is common sense. Uh, John is not the kind of writer uh, who's going to tell us that loving one another is a vital sign that we're the children of God and then in the next breath say to us, well don't worry if you can't do it. There's absolutely no assurance in that and it actually defeats the whole purpose of John writing the letter. But secondly, and far more uh, importantly, the phrase to set at rest, uh, that phrase in verse 19, it translates one word that appears in 42 other places in the New Testament. So not just once or twice, 42 other times. And in every case, it never ever means to set at rest. It always means either to persuade or to convince. And if we take that and we reinsert it back into verse 19, it gives us a totally different application. One scholar summarises the, 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 what I think is the right interpretation this way, and again I've put this on the reverse of the green sheet for you. He says, the demand for sacrificial love has been made towards one of your brothers or sisters. So you become aware of a need in the congregation. But a mean thought arises in the heart of the Christian which condemns the sacrifice demanded as unnecessary. It suggests that it can be avoided and that love can be maintained apart from a definite surrender of life or goods. The writer of the letter insists that this impulse, however natural, must be eradicated. The heart must be reasoned with and, here's the word, persuaded in the presence of God to make the sacrifice willingly. The demand of God is greater than the base and ignorant impulse of the human heart. Moreover, his knowledge is infinite and no intention of the heart escapes his notice. Now friends, I think that is the correct reading. When we see a brother or sister needing practical, sacrificial love from us, because we're still sinners, there's going to be a part of us that wants to hold back And John is saying that in that moment, the sign that I belong to the truth, that I am a child of God, is that I struggle against that ungenerous impulse. I persuade myself in the presence of God to respond to their need as best I can. Now I think that uh, interpretation is faithful to the original language. I think it fits in the context of the letter. And it also makes sense of the tremendous motivation which John gives us for doing this in verse 21. Verse 21. 
Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. So you see, to the Christian who loves sacrificially, there is the promise of a transformed prayer life. Who in church this morning does not want a transformed prayer life? Nobody. We all do. Now how does this work? The point is that God himself is generous. And we've seen that, haven't we, as a church just this week. God is generous. And it pleases him when he sees his children being generous towards one another. And the way that he shows his pleasure is by giving us confidence when we pray to him. Literally, that word for confidence means freedom of speech. So we find that we're able to to talk to God as a child talks to his father, openly, without fear, totally free. And he also shows his pleasure by answering our prayers. By the way, that that phrase, anything we ask, in verse 22, that's not a blank check. I think that does need to be said. Uh, John isn't pushing the prosperity gospel here. Uh, We know that because later on in chapter 5, verse 14, John will emphasise that the condition on which God hears our prayers is that we ask according to his will. But the point is that the Christian who overcomes his selfish reservations and actually does help a brother or sister in need, that Christian experiences an immensely richer fellowship with God as a result. He has a deep sense of reassurance that he really is a child of God. He knows that when he prays, the Father is listening attentively and lovingly. And that, friends, is the grace of brotherly love. It's God's grace to us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the sheer beauty of your word to us this morning. The command to lay down our lives for one another is both attractive, but we freely admit rather daunting, and we need your help. Open our eyes, Lord, to see afresh the wonder of your love for us, so that we will start to love one another, not merely with words, but with actions and in truth. In order that the love of Jesus might be made visible in this congregation. We ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.